science and technology is really probably, I would say, the most um, important expression of of what what we are as human beings. What you know, what we intend to do in the world. What is it that we think is important? It's a projection, if you like, of our values in the world. Because you know, what we aim to do with our technologies, how we develop them, what we develop, and how we implement them. This is all a kind of expression of the action that we would like to see as humanity. So I can't think of anything more important, actually, that that policymakers need to be coupled to. Welcome back to the Zero Pressure podcast series, a relaxed conversation with those on the cutting edge of science and technology. Hosted by me, Helen Sharman, and presented by Imperial College London and Saab, the Zero Pressure podcast series is looking at how science and technology positively can contribute to solving complex, interrelated global challenges of today and tomorrow. This time, we're discussing emerging and disruptive technologies. From artificial intelligence to quantum computing, industries are being reshaped and traditional norms challenged. How can policymakers stay ahead of the game in an ever-changing world? In this episode, we discuss strategies for policymakers to encourage and support, as well as effectively track and regulate these emerging and disruptive technologies. My guest today on Zero Pressure is Professor Deep Channa. Deep is Managing Director of NATO's Defence Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic, otherwise known as DIANA, which was launched in April 2023. He was co-director of Imperial College London's Institute for Security, Science and Technology and Centre for Financial Technology. He's interested in high-impact, low-probability events and their ramifications for sustainable security and resilience. Now, Deep, what many of our listeners will not know is that uh, you were involved in establishing Zero Pressure podcast. Today, we're delighted to have you as a guest. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. And I've got to say that I'm, uh, I am delighted to see how successful the podcast has been. And it's true. Uh, it was a couple of us, I think, over dinner uh, one evening, uh, actually a, a colleague from Saab and myself sat down uh, and this, this idea came out for doing this podcast series. Uh, and we hoped it would be successful. And I can, I can see that it's, uh, it's growing in, in success all the time. Well, we're having a great time doing it, certainly. Um, but also, Congratulations on your appointment as Managing Director of NATO's Defence Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic. Um, Diana, can, we can call it Diana, can't we? Yeah, I think it'd be easier if you called it Diana. <laughs> but start off by telling us a bit more about Diana and the work that you're now undertaking. Sure. So a few years ago, um, I started chairing a group for, for NATO um, on emerging and disruptive technologies. A group of us were convened to effectively kind of advise NATO on how it might keep pace with rapidly moving technologies that it found itself kind of uh, embedded within, right? Society and technology are moving at quite a pace. Um, and one of the things that we recommended was that we needed to see an accelerator for security and defense, um, but an accelerator that would allow us to see science and technology being moved into the sort of applied space at a greater pace, um, but also an accelerator that could address the problems of insecurity that lead to conflict, as well as producing technologies that might be used within conflict. So this is an idea of a kind of more holistic defense proposition. Um, and that's kind of the, the core, uh, if you like, idea that's baked into this, uh, this idea of Diana. So it's security in the largest sense of the world. We're not just talking about sort of um, defence and therefore indirectly war. This is about how to be safe, um, how to have food security at, at that level. 
hundred percent, and it and it sort of leans a little bit on the work that I've done whilst I've been at Imperial College, of course, through the Institute for Security Science and Technology, where we think about these security problems as being more interconnected and more holistic than you would in may, maybe more conventional defence terms. Um, and and really, the thing that we've got to get right, and the reason I've taken this job up with Diana is that the first kind of mission of defense is not to get into conflict in the first place. And so it's a very rational approach, if you think about it, that defense is actually primarily primarily interested in not getting into conflict, as well as then executing conflict, but in an efficient, low-impact way. Um, and so that's the reason why that, that holistic proposition is so important, we feel. So tell me a bit about how it works. So it's a, um, an innovation accelerator. How is that going to actually happen? Right. So, uh, I mean, there are lots of sort of uh, accelerators out there, but what we're looking for is startup, small companies, startup companies with a technology proposition um, that would have what we call dual use capability. So maybe have a direct connection to a uh, to a more classic kind of defense space problem, but also maybe an application in a, in a civilian context, which would be useful for reducing levels of insecurity. It might be a technology that improves people's ability to communicate. It might be a technology that, that improves uh, health and well-being uh, those those kind of topics um, and so that's that's really how we've kind of decided or structured the proposition of the accelerator practically speaking what it means is that we'll be funding startups we will be giving grants to startups to help them develop their ideas uh, and also networking them with industry with other academic partners with future investors so that their ideas can mature but also grow past the accelerator and you know they can be you know become very successful in the future hopefully a few of them how would you define a disruptive technology yeah that's a good really really good question and you know you, we've got this phrase emerging and disruptive technologies and it's a nice phrase but the reality is that there are many many ways that i mean technologies are forever emerging right and 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 disruptive to some level otherwise they're not an interesting technology, right? So uh, at some point in time, some a technology which ends up having widespread application and use was disruptive. Um, so I, I think the best way to describe what we mean by disruptive technologies is the technologies right now that are kind of nascent, that we can see are about to transform society, are about to transform the very way in which we live, uh, the way our social structures are actually kind of uh, um, architected. So in this sort of socio-technical environment in which we're living in, I think that's the best best way I can sort of describe what we mean by the term disruptive um, when we talk about it in, you know, in, in the present sense. Can you think of an example, an historical example, uh, to give us some sort of perspective? You know, what technology has been disruptive? Yeah, so I think I think probably a good example, and it's not a single technology, but is is our sort of um, our mission to go out into space. And I think I think human beings going to space has that that activity has led to a, a huge number of spin-off technologies that we're living with today. Um, and probably it was underestimated at the time, just just quite what a what an impact um, that kind of endeavour would ha would have in the decades that would follow. Um, so so nowadays, as I said, I think we live with lots of technologies that have been 
spun out directly from the fact that when you go and do something like that, you're convening lots and lots of different minds to solve lots and lots of different problems. Um, very innovative things, which you don't really know, you know, they're going to solve a problem for that specific activity, but you, you can't really predict that they're then going to go on and create other secondary and tertiary uh, uh, effects after that. And of course, I love your space example. Well, I, I thought, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought you might. And funnily enough, I only really got into physics and science because of space. This is, this is a, you know, this was an area where I first got interested in in high school. Um, so from a personal perspective, it, uh, it it led me into all sorts of different things, which I wouldn't have been able to predict. Um, but but again, the other thing that I think springs to mind with your question is the internet. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. you know, in yeah. I was doing my PhD and my postdoc when all of the very early bits of the internet as we know it today were being put together. And even then, you know, some of us were working on it because we were scientists, you know, transacting data and that kind of stuff. But I don't think people knew really quite how impactful and revolutionary it was going to be. You could see it was going to be big, but I, I think people would underestimate it, would have underestimated just how big it actually was going to be. NATO's picked nine main technological areas, hasn't it, to, to prioritise yeah. um, for Diana. Um what was the rationale for specifying them? And are they the same priorities that every NATO member would have? Yeah, so quite a lot of work has been done by um, the NATO chief scientist. In fact, there's a good report that was published um, from a group that was convened by the NATO chief scientist around, you know, what these, what the key priority technologies should be, you know, for the, for the coming years. Um, and in that list, you can see some of the things which are kind of fairly obvious. So things like machine learning and AI, um, the emergence of, of quantum um, computing and quantum technologies or technologies that kind of uh, utilize our knowledge of the quantum scale is perhaps a more... Listen to previous podcast episodes, everybody. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think you can, you can see uh, some things which kind of make sense for the here and now. But I would just say that these are not static... This is not a static list. And what we have to know, realize that this is a dynamic process. And so we're constantly in the position of having to look at these lists, revise them. Prioritization, I suppose, comes from us understanding what kind of global impact the technologies may or may not have. And particularly from a security and defense perspective, you you think about the opportunities positive that these things might present, but also the risks that they might represent as well. And of course, if there are significant risks associated to a particular technology, that's what might bump it up in uh, in the list of, uh, of priority areas. One of the functions of Diana itself is going to be to keep and maintain good horizon scanning. And that means, you know, looking out to see what's coming over the horizon, um, what technolo- technological developments are actually accelerating faster than we thought, which ones are perhaps not going uh, as quickly or are not showing the potential that we initially thought. And that's got to be a living, evolving process. On these teams then that are horizon scanning, you said that there are lots of people, different backgrounds, different capabilities. But at some point, these people have to advise the policymakers. Mm-hmm. How much of the actual science do the policymakers need to understand to be able to make the right decision? So I think this is a hugely important question, absolutely fundamental to what we're trying to do. So one of the things that Diana is aiming to do is to convene, you know, uh, what we call 
the triple helix in terms of stakeholders, bring industry, government and academia in closer proximity so that we can understand the problem spaces better together. And then we can also understand the route to a solution together in a better way um, and effectively educate one another about you know, how those different sectors or those different strands of that helix work. Specifically around the issue of technical literacy amongst our decision makers, this is something I think that we have got quite a long way to go on. And it is, it is an important thing for us to try and get right. And if Diana can be an agent to help with that by convening these stakeholders, I think this is going to be one of the key outputs of the program. But you can certainly see that we have a big problem with this, right? We have um, a lot of very fast moving technology going on um, from everything from finance to material sciences um, uh, and, and data science, as we've said. And at the same time, we have to think about how we formulate policies and regulations. Should we do? Should we formulate regulations in this space? Which means that our policymakers need to have a level of technical literacy that can allow them to understand what would be the right thing to do. And I'm afraid that I don't think in in many cases that we have enough of that going on. So this is an issue of kind of upskilling the kind of decision makers that we have in the policy domain, um, and then also making sure that the next generation of talent is kind of equipped with the right kind of skill sets to operate in this, as I said previously, this sort of socio-technical world. And it's not just a problem within governments, by the way. The same issue we see in industry as well, where quite often senior leadership or strategic level thinkers, as people not often refer them refer to them, do not have kind of a, a technology or a scientific background. And increasingly, this is becoming, I think, a problem because you then can't orientate and direct your organization in, in, in the most efficient or optimal way if you just don't have those skill sets. And I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody should be walking around with a, with a PhD in, in astrophysics or something like that. What I'm saying is that we need a, a layer or so of deeper understanding of some of these topics in our decision-making circles. And that currently, I think, is a problem that we are suffering and it's probably manifest and was, was, was most clearly highlighted by issues like the, the pandemic uh, of the last few years. What are the risks for governments and organisations if they don't keep track of emerging technologies? I mean, where to start? But I think it's just a it's just a very very systemic risk for for our societies if if policymakers do not keep track of this sort of stuff. More and more, you know, technology is part of our everyday lives. It determines um, how we how we live. Um, it shapes how we live, um, and I think. That is a very, very important political and policy domain to embrace and to, and to be very connected with. Um, I mean, another way of looking at it really is that I think our technology, our science and technology is really probably, I would say, the most um, important expression of, of what, what we are as human beings, what, you know, what we intend to do in the world, what is it that we think is important. It's a projection, if you like, of our values in the world because you know, what we aim to do with our technologies, how we develop them, what we develop and how we implement them, this is all a kind of expression of the action that we would like to see as humanity. So I can't think of anything more important actually that, that policymakers need to be coupled to, particularly as you know, technologies as, as you know, as I've just sort of tried to outline, is becoming more and more proliferated, is becoming more and more intertwined with our, our daily lives. And that trend you can see is just set to grow um, in, in the coming decades. Um, there are parts of the world where some of the technologies that maybe you and I take for granted 
they haven't even touched those communities yet. And that is yet to come and yet to happen. So really, this is an important thing, both on the national and the global scale for our for our politicians to get right. And as citizens, we should be really, you know, asking for that. That's that's important for us to have uh, such that our leaders and our leadership and can actually connect with this very, very important domain. A theme that keeps on recurring in the Zero Pressure podcast is one of resilience. And I'm wondering, can you see some of these emerging disruptive technologies actually being disruptive to perhaps our national infrastructures? A hundred percent. And this speaks a little bit to the fact that us being able to separate our critical national infrastructures from the missions or the ideas around defence uh, we, th- there aren't any real boundaries as, as we might have imagined them decades ago. Um, so, you know, you, you might have thought previously that national security or critical national infrastructure security and, and defence were two very different domains without any real connection. But actually, the two are now very, very uh, deeply intertwined and interrelated. Um, and you can see that disruptive technologies have helped us help help to get us there. Um, in many cases, for example, we can see communication systems, data information systems, and data processing systems revolutionising how our critical national infrastructures are actually run and how they work. Um, at the same time, those very same technologies can introduce new vulnerabilities to those infrastructure systems such that they may be attacked in slightly different ways. So the cybersecurity of things like our, our energy grids and stuff like that, you know, is, these are these are issues that have emerged over the last few decades as technologies have transformed how those industries actually work. And as I said, then introduce new risks. And then, of course, those new risks, you start asking yourself, is that a is that a national security problem or is it a defense problem? And it t- turns out that it's it's a mixture of all of those different things. So that that trend, I think, is only set to continue. And particularly when we look at things like the way machine learning will be revolutionizing how our infrastructure systems are actually managed and run. I'll be back with Deep shortly. I've also been talking with Dr. Sanjay Mazumdar. With three decades of experience in the defence, national security and ICT sectors, Sanjay is the Executive Director of the Australian Defence Trailblazer, which is a funded cooperative research centre, a partnership between the universities of Adelaide and New South Wales, focused on accelerating and nurturing defence technologies. Which technologies, Sanjay, are of particular interest to Australia in the defence domain? It's a good question, Helen. I mean, just recently, the Australian government published what's known as the Defence Strategic Review. Um, And in the Defence Strategic Review, they actually called out a number of key uh, technology areas. And these include areas like um, AI, um, quantum computing, cyber, um, hypersonics. So those those are sort of very front of mind at the moment for Australian defence um, and really, I guess, because of some of the strategic threat environment in which we're operating. I've heard you talk elsewhere, Sanjay, about the urgency of the strategic threat landscape and what's creating this urgency? Yeah, so there, there are a number of factors that are creating the urgency. One is just the geopolitical environment in which we're operating. Um, so in the sort of Indo-Pac area, Indo-Pacific area, there are a lot of 
um, a lot of tensions uh, that are currently at play, and those tensions mean that there's heightened a heightened awareness of of what what Australia needs to do. More so, there are there are global actors um, in defence. We often refer to you know in, um, the bad actors, so actors who are who sort of um, have their targets on on assets within Australia, whether that be commercial assets, infrastructure assets like power and energy, etc., or defence assets. Is the defence trailblazer totally focused on technology? No, it's not, Helen. I mean, one of the other programs we have is focused on workforce innovation culture. Now, the workforce piece is really critical. If you speak to any of the CEOs of defence companies or to the chief of defence force, one of the number one priorities is the shortage of the skilled workforce to help with their with their organisation. And so, one of the things that Defence Trailblazers focused on is how do we provide the skills for today. So for defence professionals of today, but also help to try and provide the workforce for tomorrow. And that can be through things like, you know, uh, training programs of PhD students, internships, etc. So workforce is another critical aspect of what we're focusing on within the Defence Trailblazer. Thank you to Sanjay Mazumda. Now let's go back to Deep Channel. If you had to pick one, personally, I'm asking you now, um, one nascent technology that you think um, has the potential to pose perhaps the biggest risk to our future stability and insecurity, what would it be? Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult not to put, I think, at this moment in time to put machine learning at the top of that list right now. Uh, there are many other technologies and technological developments which are, which are going to be, you know, game changing for humanity. But it's also difficult to see how machine learning won't play a part in each one of those. It is it is quite an extraordinary moment in history now with the development of this particular technology. There are huge benefits that we might gain from using large data sets with the advanced algorithmics that machine learning gives us to, to, to change society for the better. But that same technology um, can easily be used to take us in the opposite direction, to double down on the inequities that we currently have in the world, to create situations of greater instability and insecurity. And examples of such sort of this sort of trend, you could imagine or what are happening right now with uh, with sort of activities in misinformation and disinformation, for example. Um, and so that the technology that can actually help to transform our societies could potentially also undermine them. Um, and I think right now, this whole debate around how we direct the development and implementation of things like machine learning and perhaps in the future artificial intelligence, it's a, it's a key moment to have this discussion. Um, and I, I, as I said, I'd struggle to put anything above that right now. Is it possible to pause development of something like machine learning um, on any large scale, let's say a, a NATO or a, um, a global scale even? So I know that some people have call, called for that. Um, I can understand why that's been called for. I, I, think, I think those calling for it possibly don't even believe that that pause is possible, but it puts a marker in the sand. It sends a signal up that something needs to be done. I think that's the reason that you're hearing that discussion happening, because I don't think it's actually 
practical or even possible to be able to control what is a global endeavor. Um, there are there are people working on this technology all over the world, and the pace is frenetic. Um, I think, though, there is perhaps, um, whilst maybe not a pause in activity, it, there is need for us to step back and to consider the ramifications of what is being developed. Um, and to think about exactly how we're going to direct the development and implementation of this of this sort of technology domain, um, and this kind of goes, this couples into this conversation about having technically literate leadership and technically literate decision makers who can fully understand both the potential benefits and the risks. And I don't think, I unfortunately, don't think we're in that world right now. That's a situation we don't have. Um, and we really need to change that a little bit so that we can, you know, properly think about how we might influence and direct the, the use of this technology. Academia um, is one of the you know, great, I would perhaps say a driver of innovation, but certainly perhaps it spawns huge amounts of innovation, doesn't it? Um, does NATO particularly want to involve academia or is it just um, academia is just one of the many um, organi- sort of sets of organisations out there that is driving innovation? No, I think we particularly want to engage with academia. Um, our universities and our academics um, are the places and th- these are the places and these are the people that should be able to think most objectively about some of the problems that we've you know been discussing through this podcast and you know some of these issues around um, about how we direct technology development and all these sort of things they can become very rapidly politicized and they can become very skewed if they're if they're just solely sort of kind of ensconced within certain industrial complexes and universities have got a great position of being kind of a little bit independent from all of that uh, and having the space and the time to be objective and to have more objective reasoning around these issues and so for that reason nato very much is looking to engage specifically with universities um not to mention the fact that these are the kind of these are the grounds within which you know we breed the next generation of 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 you know of talent that is really thinking about some of these complex problems so there has to be a very specific engagement with universities for for all of those reasons and um that's again something which with with the diana program we will be um seeking to establish and to grow over the coming years i could just hear some voices of some of my uh, academic colleagues ringing in my ears saying, oh, but if you fund targeted research, then what's going to happen to blue sky research? Is there a danger that as the world becomes more and more focused on targeted research, that we do lose some of our blue sky stuff? There is a bit of danger of that. And, and just to be clear with the Diana programme, we are talking about funding startups here. We are talking about funding companies that are wishing to develop products that might see final use in society. I'm a physicist by training. Um, I believe that the underpinning, uh, for want of a better phrase, blue skies research area is absolutely fundamental to support. And we must never lose sight of the fact that, in fact, we need a thriving fundamental and theoretical research base from which we can then derive or from which we can get these technologies being spun out, if you like. Um, without that, there is no potential for doing anything new. Um, and actually, I, I, it's, it's interesting because I'm often in rooms where I have to speak to non-scientists and technologists to try and explain to them just how long the time cycles are 
for something to actually see the front page of their newspapers. So, you know, with some of the stuff that we see um, around various breakthrough technologies, I mean, quantum computing became really, really popular in the last few years, right? But it didn't just suddenly emerge over the last few years. And I think people have to realize that there's a there's a hundred year endeavor here that brings us to the point where we can start talking about it um, openly in society. But the research and the activity has taken a long, long time. Um, and so it's always important, I think, to try and support um, and talk about supporting that fundamental blue skies research, as you put it. Talk to me about space a bit more. Um, what new technologies um, in the space domain uh, are providing perhaps benefits and risks to national security, do you think? Well, there are, you know, I think I think what we're seeing more generally uh, on space is um, it's becoming a more accessible domain for humanity, right? So you, you can see that more countries than ever are involved in, in some kind of activity and being able to launch and be able to put satellites into, into low Earth orbit and even into geosynchronous orbit. So th- the activity in space is going to increase, which, you know, just that on its own is going to mean potentially greater interconnectivity and infrastructure systems for parts of the world that have never had those kind of things before, right? So, you know, you can think about everything from general communications to the powering of cloud computing and digital infrastructure, you know, just because that whole domain of space opens up. So there's a huge opportunity there. Um, There is, of course, then a big risk that everybody's clamoring into space. And one of the things that concerns me is really about how we how we might manage the, the sort of polluting activity of that environment. Like the space debris kind of thing. 100%. One of my, uh, funny enough, one of my postdoc positions uh, when I finished my PhD in physics was actually on space debris. And so we were looking at what might happen if something in low Earth orbit uh, you know, were, were to disintegrate or blow up and what kind of contagion effect that would have in terms of particles and debris. And these are bad problems. You know, you really don't want to start polluting space. And I'm, I'm quite keen that we think very carefully about whether or not we replicate the kind of polluting activity that we have on the surface of the planet in this new domain of human activity. Um, and so there are there are some big risks around that, particularly when things like geographic jurisdictions and things like that are very difficult to enforce in space. Um, we have to really think collectively as a, as a planet what we are going to do in this domain, how we are going to deliver the benefits whilst also making sure that we don't end up making that domain unusable in mm. the future. Do you think space should remain a global common? I do think that, actually. I, I do think space should remain a global common. Um, I think... It is a forcing function to think that way for us as human beings to reimagine how we govern the, the, the place that we live. Um, up until now, I think we've, uh, we've governed by compartmentalization and geographic boundaries and then try to figure out how do we stitch it all together into alliances and partnerships. Uh, and space, just because of its structure, I suppose, um, kind of... Uh, immediately challenges that ability for us to do that. Um, and so it forces us to think in different ways, all the way from the technological perspective to to the policy and governance uh, uh, perspective. So I think if we keep it in mind that it is a global commons 
and physically maybe couldn't be anything other than that. Um, this helps us to move the dial and the conversation in many different ways uh, and perhaps transform, transform our societies for the good. Is it going to affect our geopolitical structures, do you think, that you know, we, we should no longer be divided up the way that we have done so for so long? I think, I think there's a great potential for it, again, to move us beyond the current way that we think about um, localization versus kind of global interconnectivity. I think we do have to rethink what those two things mean. Um, potentially, you know, driving us to a world of future where, you know, most of the things we do are dominated by by global collaboration and cooperation. Um, ultimately, I think if you think about what the end state is, if you're talking about trying to create sustainable peace and sustainable security for people, a core thing that you should ask yourself in a defense and security context, that is the end goal. That is kind of where you want to get to, right? Um, anything other than that is suboptimal. So really, it has to be the, the, the goal, the perfective goal that you've got to, that's got to drive you. Um, and yes, I think, again, space has that potential to, to sort of help us to orientate our discussions and our debates in, in, in that direction. Because as I said, anything else is a, is a suboptimal solution and potentially even a disastrous one. We've come on to the rapid fire section of Zero Pressure Deep. Okay. Um, do you think the world is safer or less safe with 21st century technology? I think the world is at a tipping point right now where we could go, we could go either way. Uh, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but genuinely, I think right now we're in a position where it could go either way. And this is a, a point of making that decision. Which technology areas do you think will be most disruptive to daily life in the next, let's say, couple of decades? I think the global access to the internet and to digital communication systems and mobile telephony are, uh, th these are going to be the things that most people in the world, if you look at it from a global perspective, are going to feel the biggest change from. Um, and of course, things like machine learning, powering some of that stuff is going to make a big difference. What global crisis do you think will be eradicated by an emerging technology? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the access to education and to knowledge is uh, an area where we, which we could see solved quite quickly and quite readily. Um, that's probably, the, I, I would say that's the lowest hanging fruit. Deep, thank you. It's been a uh, captivating discussion. We've gone from machine learning to policy, politics, um, security. Uh, we've been out into space um, and back to Earth again. And you've really explained, I think, how technology underpins so much of our daily lives and our security, even when we might not be aware of it. Um, the world can be a scary place at times, but I think actually it's heartening to know we have people like you working towards a safer future for us all. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to join you. Deep talked about how policymakers are encouraging innovation through Diana's support of startups. Technical areas have been prioritised for their potential for global military and civilian impact, although they're being continually reassessed. And there's been a shift in what leads innovation from the military to the commercial space. 
Deep also mentioned how we're moving away from the traditional thoughts of defence and security and tackling insecurity at its roots before it escalates to conflict. Do listen in to the upcoming episode of Zero Pressure Podcast next time, which will be about Earth's final frontier, the oceans. With 80% of the seas still unexplored and unmapped, how can technology help us better understand the oceans? What are we hoping to find? What do nations risk by not understanding the oceans? And what opportunities would a better understanding present for defence and security? Please share the podcast, leave a review and tune in next time. In the meantime, I leave you with this thought from the writer and editor Stuart Brand. Once a new technology rolls over you, if you're not part of the steamroller, you're part of the road.